Hello, what is the crack? Welcome to episode number 86 of the Blind Boy podcast. How are you getting on? Are you having a lovely, charming week? I certainly am. I'm writing my bollocks off. Book deadline is coming up pretty soon. And I'm I'm writing furiously several thousand words a day. Um, several thousand words that I'm happy with. So I'm very pleased with how the book is going. I'm happy to report. Very pleased. Um, all going well. The new book will be out, I'd say, October. And it's going to be another collection of short stories. Just like the first book, The Gospel According to Blind Boy. Don't know what the second book's going to be called. Having a clue. Not even in that discussion yet. My only priority is to deliver the first draft of that fucking book within the next week. And I reckon I'm going to do it. Um, so anyway, thank you for the lovely responses to last week's podcast, which was good crack. It was a, a cultural history of Irish faction fighting. It was a nice little historical hot take type of podcast. If you're new to the podcast, go back to some earlier episodes, maybe start at the very start. I try not to I try not to have each podcast kind of too relevant as to what's happening right now. I'll always mention a little bit at the start that's chronologically relevant, we'll say, but other than that you can you can dip into any podcast you like and it doesn't matter whether it's a year old or whatever. So this week what I'd like to Based on, and we, we just had our, our European and local elections there in Ireland. And I'm relatively happy with the results because we have a trend emerging called the Green Wave. Where basically the Green Party of Ireland and you know politicians who have climate action as something they want to tackle. People appear to be voting these people in. Now... You know, regarding the Green Party of Ireland, historically, they tend to talk the talk and not necessarily walk the walk, unfortunately. So let's hope that the Green representatives that have been elected will go forward into fucking Europe and rattle a few cages. Um, But if they don't, I think it's still hugely positive that the vast majority of Irish people are now voting and actually showing that, hold on a second lads, this climate business, we need to fucking address this, we need to do whatever we can to address this. So I was very happy to see that the average person voting is actually giving a shit about that. That's really encouraging to me. Um, One positive that came out of the Green Wave thing, like our current fucking government, Fianna Gael, Terrible pricks when it comes to the environment. They're they're considered dinosaurs on environment policy. After the Green Wave uh, election, carry on, the leader of Fine Gael, Lee of Radcar, came out and said that climate change is now a huge priority, the number one priority of Fine Gael. He could be talking out of his hoop, but it's better than him not saying it. Now, as I've mentioned before in this podcast, if climate change is to be really sorted out in the way that the fucking UN is saying it needs to be sorted out, 70% of the issue is not caused by you and me, it's caused by massive corporations 
in particular in the petroleum industry. So any politician out there who has climate in their agenda, your first fucking call to action has to be aggressively tackling these corporations that are creating these issues. It's as simple as that. It's if it's no good turning around to us and saying, do more recycling. Absolutely, we can all recycle. We can all be more green in our everyday lives. We can switch the amount, you know. I've, I've been on a plant-based diet for six days of the week for the past two months. For just for my own little... I'm keeping an eye on my own individual uh, footprint, we'll say, ecologically. So one thing I did is I've... I only really eat meat once, maximum twice a week. And it's not difficult at all, to be honest. It really isn't difficult. Loads of yummy food. Um, and it just, it, it helps me sleep better at night. And I, I get to enjoy then my chicken or steak on a Sunday. And it's fine. And I'm doing my bit to help the climate. On top of all the recycling I do. But I'm going to continue doing that. But that's no good for you and me to be doing if... The people in power are not aggressively tackling the huge corporations that are causing 70% of global warming. So that needs to be the first priority of any green politician. Tackling these corporate pricks. And Ireland has, a, I think, a unique advantage in this respect. Because so many huge corporations have got their headquarters in Dublin. So they cannot pay any tax at all. So... Maybe knock on their fucking doors because it's just around the corner from you. Because that's the interesting thing about Ireland, you see. Like, Ireland's carbon footprint as a country is pretty fucking small. Like, firstly, we're a tiny island. So if you look at global warming as a whole, we're like a percentage of a percent. We're a fraction of a fucking percent. Ireland's impact on on the environment is very, very little. Even... Like, when it comes to, you know, people talk about the the meat industry and the dairy industry and that impact on the environment. Even Ireland's dairy industry, as dairy industries go, isn't that much impactful on the environment because the big culprits are, like, huge, huge pastures of cows where forests are cleared like rainforest is cleared like in Argentina just to have all these cows farting. That's really bad. In Ireland, it's like pastured grass-fed cows. It's not great, but that's not the worst. Do you get me? So some cynical people say, well, why should we even be talking about climate change in Ireland? Because we, you know, our footprint is so small. What's the point? I, I don't think so. I think what Ireland can do is... We can lead by example, you know, because we, the thing is too, because we don't have a huge foot in the game, because we don't have this huge impact on the global climate, we get to be radicals who are roaring and shouting about it. And our elected MEPs get to go to Europe because the carbon footprint of fucking Europe, now that's pretty big. Our MEPs get to go to Europe and hopefully, if they're not talking out of their arses, they can be the ones in the European Parliament holding Portugal to account, holding Spain to account, holding France to account, holding the entire EU to account and becoming a watchdog, becoming a, a thorn in the side of much larger economies 
um, that are having a, a, a measurable impact on the environment. So Ireland absolutely can play a really, really, not only an important role, but quite a unique fucking role. So that's what, I'm not speaking to any politicians, I'm speaking to you and to me and to whoever's listening. This is what we need to keep our eyes out for. If our MEPs are not doing that, then they're not doing their fucking job. And we need to tell them. So what I want to talk about this week, though, is I want it to be a climate podcast. I'd like to address more climatey things on the podcast in general. I was asked before, why don't I do a lot of climate change podcasts? And the answer I gave you was, because it's too negative. It's too scary and negative and I don't like thinking about it. Well, I've I've changed my attitude around that in the past six months. And I've re- read about it more. And I'm much more focused now on what can you do? What can be done? You know, aside from holding these huge corporations to account, doing the little things in our own lives, keeping our own politicians to account. One, one thing that is... One thing that we can all get stuck into and give us a real sense of achievement and something you can actually individually create real change, biodiversity, okay? So there's two kind of climate emergencies. There's the one with, okay, the, the global warming where the temperatures are getting hotter and everything that goes with that. We know about that one. But the other big, big crisis that was announced very recently that needs huge radical action against is, is biodiversity. And biodiversity is is basically all around the world, okay, there is man's impact. The impact of civilization is is really reducing the numbers of living things and the diversity and range of living things in each little country, all right? And man is doing this. And as we know, all living things are interconnected in this symbiotic system where there's a basic there's a relationship going on with every single little thing from the wolf down to the fungus that you can't even see. It's all interconnected through nature and humans are fucking this up they're throwing it off kilter and as a result there's huge amounts of extinctions and like i think in ireland i think that it's 90 percent. i think 90 percent of like birds and insects uh have disappeared which is is really really shit but there is ways for all of us to act in our own individual ways that can have a significant impact to improve this biodiversity if everyone kind of does it if this becomes a new part of our culture if this becomes a new lifestyle that we do so i want to speak about that on this podcast this week what we can each do individually to deal with this biodiversity issue in a positive way because look you can either sit on your arse and go sure jesus i'm too small what possible impact could i have or you could go, oh, there's much smarter people than me that are trying to fix this. Or you can go, Asher, there's no point at all. I don't want to do anything. Fuck it. We're fucked. 
I don't get any of those positions. I would like to, you know, inspire people to have some action in my own life and then try and hold politicians to account and try at least. And the worst thing that can happen out of that is I get, you know, I get a sense of personal meaning and happiness from now being interested in biodiversity and helping animals. What a lovely thing to do. And could get hit by a bus tomorrow, you know. That's the way I look at anything in life is on a large enough time scale, we're all fucked, you know. People get cancer, people get hit by buses, terrible sad things happen. This is the inevitable pain of existing as a human being and through that tapestry of pain, we can have a choice to create a sense of meaning and happiness in our daily lives. So I'm going to go with that option. One thing I want to address before I get into this podcast. um, This is like, I wear a plastic bag on my head. I wear a single-use plastic bag on my head, okay? And any time I talk about climate online, someone's contrarian father fucking gets into my mentions and goes, what are you talking about climate change for? Are you going to take off your plastic bag? And w- Your plastic bag isn't environmentally friendly, you fucking charlatan. So someone's Fina Gale contrarian da gets in my mentions and gives me this shit. Well, Donald, let me tell you, regarding my plastic bag and the environment, my, my plastic bag is, it's a single-use plastic bag, and this is why my plastic bag is, is very environmentally friendly. My bag, as you know, it's a shop called JC's in Swords, okay? And I wear their single-use plastic bag because I like the design and JC's is a family business and it was almost shut down by, a, by an Aldi or a Lidl, I think it was. And I just started wearing their bags because I didn't like wearing the bags of... The large corporations. I felt it was nice to support this small family supermarket and swords. But JCs no longer use single-use plastic bags because they gave their all of them to me. They gave me a couple of thousand single-use plastic bags for me to keep and to make masks out of. So here's the thing with my plastic bag. I've actually taken a few thousand single-use plastic bags completely out of circulation from the supermarket. They won't make them again. I then take these single-use plastic bags and I repurpose them into a new purpose. That's the best thing you can do with single-use plastic because it cannot be destroyed or it can't be recycled. So I repurpose single-use plastic bags that are taken out of circulation and I make them into masks. They get several uses. I then store these bags. I don't throw them away. I keep them safe. And hopefully one day what I'll do when I'm when I'm old is I'm going to make an art installation. Just I'm going to build a giant sink. A huge sink with, with a tap on it. Massive, but the size of a house. And then there's going to be a larger plastic bag in there. And I will store all the single-use plastic bags that I turned into masks. I will store them underneath a giant a giant sink as an art installation. So, 
my single-use plastic bags that I wear on my face, they are environmentally friendly because what I'm doing is I'm, I'm repurposing something. And reusing and repurposing is the best approach that you can do with something that can't be disposed of. And I've taken a serious amount of them out of circulation. These these now don't end up in hedgerows. I have them. I look after them. I don't throw them out. I keep them. And JC's supermarket now uses reusable plastic bags. So fuck you, Donald. So with this week's podcast, what I'd like to focus on is Irish biodiversity, but from a post-colonial perspective. I'm going to go very hot takey with it. Um... <clears throat> and I want to talk about how kind of the, the situation that Irish plants and animals and insects are in now isn't really that recent a thing. How you can trace it very much to it being a colonial problem. Something that started with the plantations by the British in Ireland. And I want to make the case as to how each of us trying to improve biodiversity is not only something that helps the planet and helps the environment, but it's a a radical act of decolonization. All right? I'm just doing that for the hot take, to be honest, to make it interesting. But sure, fuck it, we'll have a lash. So... The thing with Ireland, Ireland used to have a fierce amount of forests and we don't really have that anymore. We don't have a huge amount of forests. Now, you can imagine the amount of life that a forest supports and once you take that forest away, then the life that's there is gone. The first, when the Normans came to Ireland in the 1100s, 1200s, they very much had an eye on the timber in Ireland. So they had a crack at it, but, you know, it was the 1100s, they were taking bits of it away. But, when you get to, we say, Henry VIII's time, in the 1500s, one major thing that really changed the landscape and wildlife in Ireland, in in 1543, King Henry VIII, who, he, I suppose... Out of all the kings, the British kings and queens, Henry VIII was the, was a really fucking bad one for Ireland because he's the one who changed England to Protestantism so he could have several wives, but that made the conquest of Ireland very religiously based and very dogmatic. It became about eradicating Catholicism, you know? the British Empire all of a sudden now had a real excuse to eradicate the Irish. But in 1543, Henry VIII brings in this thing called the the Forest Act. And it was this charter because in England, they had been rapidly depleting their own forests. And this was at a time when the British Empire was just kind of starting to expand. So they really needed timber. And their own native timber resources were declining. So the Henry VIII's Forest Act is the first aggressive attempt that the British had of really taking forests out of Ireland for the use of the timber and clearing this to create 
pasture, I suppose you'd call it. But also, the deforestation by the British in Ireland was... It was ideological as well, and it was also strategic. There was a proverb from sometime in the 1500s, but it was the Brits used to say, the Irish will never be tamed while the leaves are on the trees. And what that meant is that when... Like, b- before Henry VIII, and we'll say afterwards, the Tudor conquest, you had the Normans in Ireland. And the first 400 years of British conquest, like, the Normans were pricks. The Normans essentially are, they're Brits that are second or third generation French. They were the first that came over. They were pricks, but the first Normans that came over, they kind of absorbed themselves into Irish culture and they intermarried with the native Gaelic Irish and became more Irish than the Irish, you know. So real aggressive, brutal British colonisation only really starts from kind of King Henry VIII onwards. And when they would find themselves fighting, we'll say, the last of... The Irish aristocracy, I suppose you'd call the you know the dynasties and and native Irish clans that ruled certain areas that were fighting the British. They would the the Irish would use forests as subterfuge, as a way to hide, as a way to attack, and that's why the Brits were saying the Irish will never be tamed while the leaves are on the trees. There was also an actual a type of Irish warfare for fighting the Brits. And it was known as plashing. And plashing was where the actual forest was used as a weapon against invading British armies. They would get, uh, they'd make a forest impassable. They'd, they'd get all the boughs of trees and tie them together to form these impenetrable walls. And to use this as a defensive structure against the attacking British. So attack them, then disappear into the forest. So deforestation became not only a way to take resources from Ireland and to uh, redistribute in Britain or other parts of the emerging empire, but also deforestation became a way to remove the Irish natural defences against the British invaders. Similar to what, you know, the Americans did in Vietnam in the 1960s, the Viet Cong, who were fighting the Americans in the Vietnam War, would use the forests as subterfuge to hide and to attack and to disappear so the Yanks defoliated the place they had stuff called Agent Orange which was a a defoliant that they'd spray over huge amounts of fucking jungles and it would utterly destroy all life all over Vietnam and the Americans did that via helicopters because the Viet Cong were using forests as a strategic way to attack and Ironically, that chemical they used, Agent Orange, it caused American soldiers to go psychotic, to have particularly very, very bad PTSD with um, hallucinations as well. But that's a separate podcast. But the deforestation of Ireland by the British, it was a very deliberate thing to eradicate the people, but had this knock-on effect of also drastically changing the biodiversity in Ireland I mean think of all the animals that don't have homes think of the deer, the wild boar that don't exist anymore 
because of this aggressive deforestation by the British. Also, one thing that never really gets spoken about is the Oliver Cromwell's conquest of Ireland, which we remember as the bloodiest and most brutal murder, wide-scale murder of Irish people by the British is is probably Cromwell's comes to mind. He, he was a particularly nasty bastard. You know, when Cromwell sacked Drogheda, thousands and thousands of women, children and men killed. Like, he literally said, don't stop until your swords are drunk with the blood of Irish people, you know? So this was a particularly nasty character. But what isn't spoken about is Cromwell's personal vendetta on the native Irish wolf. Cromwell basically personally caused wolves to go extinct in Ireland. Now, I know what you're thinking. Class, who wants fucking wolves? Well, wolves are what's known as a keystone species. They're apex predators. So if you think of how, we'll say, the ecosystem of the Irish forest would have worked, you're going to have wolves, you know, aggressive carnivores, and they're feeding on deers, wild pigs, boars. These animals are then feeding on plant and vegetation, and insects are then reliant upon those plants and vegetation to survive. So... Cromwell aggressively pushed for the eradication of the Irish wolf and he caused the Irish wolf to be extinct, effectively. And the reason, like, they reintroduced wolves in Yellowstone Park in America in 1996, right? They had no wolves at all. It once had wolves, but they were hunted, so they said, fuck it, let's bring the wolves back in. And the effect that bringing wolves back into Yellowstone Park had on all of the ecosystem they couldn't believe it it changed the behavior of the type of animals that the wolves were eating we'll say so all of a sudden deers are a little bit more cautious they're not eating as many plants they're not stripping the ground of moss you know and then the knock-on effect that has for the insects more birds started returning to the area because of the wolves It had an effect on trout in the river. So just by reintroducing those wolves in Yellowstone, it had this huge beneficial effect on the entire ecosystem. So you can imagine what happened to Ireland when Cranwell went in and got rid of those wolves. Now how did he do it? And why did he do it? Well, there's there's a more tenuous argument that's ideological and then a more realistic one uh, that's practical the ideological argument and one that I would look at from a colonial perspective is when when a large empire like Britain or Spain or anywhere colonises a a native people it's, it's not just about the sheer violent brutality on the people themselves it's about the complete eradication of culture an eradication of identity, an eradication of pride. And Cromwell hated the Irish. Cromwell didn't believe the Irish to be human. He saw the Irish as a heathen race of either, you know, fucking very devoted Catholics or pagans that 
completely deserved to be eradicated. Cromwell believed that Irish culture was inferior and savage and needed to be tamed and deforested and stripped. And one way that you do that alongside killing the people, you kill the only natural predator. The wolf being a possible symbol of strength or power or freedom. I mean, if you're a band of fucking Gaelic warriors fighting Cromwell and you're hiding out in the fucking forests and the trees and you're trying to look for this strength within you to fight these British soldiers with their superior armour, you hear a pack of wolves howling in the distance and their freedom and their ability to creep through the fucking trees and use the subterfuge and follow the moon and strike and leave the gorilla nature of a wolf pack I'm just hot taken like a motherfucker here but I imagine 15th 16th century Gaelic warriors in the forests fighting Cromwell's forces of course they're going to be drawn inspiration from something like a wolf do you know because they're seeing parallels with it so when you as an army and as a force eradicate the wolves that sends a very strong message of propaganda that not even the mighty fucking wolf can evade my new model army you're all fucked and this eradication of Irish wolves it was it was incredibly deliberate by Cromwell he put huge bounties on wolves and huge amounts of professional wolf killers arrived over from England with the sole purpose of eradicating the Irish wolf and they managed to do it in about 30 years there had like the, the 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 native wolf in Ireland ended with Oliver Cromwell because of Oliver Cromwell now another practical reason why Cromwell wanted rid of the wolves is you have to look at what what was Oliver Cromwell doing in Ireland Cromwell came over as part of kind of the end phase of the, the second Tudor invasion like I mentioned the Normans had conquered Ireland in the 1100s, but they had become more Irish than the Irish. They intermarried with Gaelic clans. And before Cromwell, Ireland wasn't really properly colonised. What you had was the area around Dublin known as the Pale. But anything outside of Dublin, Kildare, was called Beyond the Pale. You still hear this phrase today. English people use it, the phrase Beyond the Pale. Beyond the Pale means savage the savage lands beyond Dublin where the English rule doesn't doesn't hold because the original Norman settlers, they kind of married into Irish Gaelic dynasties and they were no longer considered themselves kind of to have any allegiance with Britain whatsoever. They had embraced a new type of Irishness. You see this with Irish names that like, if you're called Fitzgibbon or Fitzmaurice, like the Fitz part, that's a French, it means fee, it means son. So these are Anglo or Hiberno-Norman names. So the Tudor conquest was, it was kind of way of going, fuck these cunts, we're really taking Ireland this time and we're going to eradicate them and we're going to root out any problem. Any Gaelic clans that have any claim for their land, they're gone, they're done. So Cromwell's specific goal was obviously to create a land that was fully Protestant, but his thing was plantations. So the 
what the plantations were is it's literally confiscating huge amounts of land banishing or killing the ruling families of that land killing the population telling them to move to shittier lands and Cromwell's thing was create these plantations right have these huge swathes of of land to be exploited and fill them with English and Scottish settlers eradicate the Irish replace them with new colonizers but aggressively exploit the land in the interests of Britain get rid of the forests replace those lands with pastures for cattle for grazing how can you have sheep and cows if you have wolves so Cromwell's deliberate attempt at eradicating this keystone species the wolves it was a way to bolster and make the plantations that had cattle and sheep and goats as as profitable as possible so that there was no threat that any of these animals would be killed by the wolves and you could further exploit the land in the interest of Britain so that's their kind of part two of the huge effect that Cromwell had on the biodiversity of Ireland he's after kicking out the wolves massive deforestation and now replacing natural meadows and forests with industrial agrarian grasslands that have nothing but grass and hedgerows what does that do to insects what does that do to native birds so that's the the a huge kick in the balls that ireland took in its biodiversity as a result of uh, english colonialism before i get into where it goes from there now we're 30 minutes in so we'll have a bit of an ocarina pause um, you might hear a digital advert, you might not, I don't know, but I'm going to play the ocarina anyway. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That was the ocarina pause. God bless. Um, This podcast is supported by you, the listener via the patreon page do you enjoy the podcast do you listen to it every week do you listen to it for free well you can support this podcast through the patreon page patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast the patreon page makes a fucking huge difference to my life it provides me with a source of income it keeps this podcast going and anyone who is a patron thank you so fucking much so if you'd like to do that 
sign up to the Patreon and once a month give me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee and that keeps me going. If you can't afford it, you can listen for free but if you are enjoying this and you can afford it, please do. It makes a real huge change to my life. So thank you so much. Also, like the podcast, share it, recommend it to people, subscribe on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, leave a review, all that carry on. All right. So what I'm, what I'm moving to now is we'll say the 1700s and 1800s. And these colonised plantations that were all over Ireland, these huge, massive swathes of land that were deforested and agrarian and pa- and pastures essentially for cattle um these lands were owned by a very a relatively small amount of the population the protestant ascendancy okay on these plantations you would have had a small amount of land that was dedicated to the landlord assuming they were actually living in ireland but they had these massive estates with the plantation house. But what they also had was the landscaped garden. Okay? And this is what I really want to try and focus on. In the 1600s to 1700s, owners of large plantations in all around the world, really, what they wanted to try and do is they wanted to shape and manipulate the the land directly in front of their house for purely aesthetic means specifically like in the birth of landscaping what they wanted was to reflect kind of the artwork and paintings at the times so if you go to certain one good example is is there's a place called Donnerale Park in Cork and that has an old school kind of plantation house and I'm not going to lie it's beautiful when you when you stand at the door of that plantation house and look down you can see how the entire landscape of the gardens including an artificial lake was constructed not by nature but by human hands to specifically create an absolutely perfect picturesque view and what this meant was completely ripping out any natural uh, flowers, any Irish flowers, getting rid of them and bringing instead imported flowers from around the British Empire. A common thing you find with, and this is where a lot of dangerous invasive plant species find their way into Ireland because that's another huge issue with biodiversity. You start bringing in these plants that aren't native and animals and they do better than the plants and animals that are native and they eradicate them and they don't belong there and they soon start to have an unfair advantage within the ecosystem and fuck everything else up. But, like, in... Down by Yorty's Couch in Limerick, okay, that's... That river that I speak about where I meditate and I run, where Yorty Ahern the otter lives, that's near an area called Plassey, okay? And Plassey is called Plassey is because it was named after the Battle of Plassey, which was a battle in India that had something to do with a lad called the Earl of Plassey, I think. But anyway, the area around University of Limerick is former kind of plantation land where there was 
these landscaped gardens. But there's an invasive species called giant hogweed, which is a huge, huge problem down there. It competes with other plants, but it's also, if you if you were to touch giant hogweed, it leaves blisters on your skin for the rest of your life. It can cause you to go blind. And this is all around that area of Limerick because it was introduced by one of these plantation owners. But ultimately, what I want to look at ideologically is these really beautiful landscaped gardens that when viewed from the door of the plantation house look like oil paintings you know you look down and the hills and bumps are manicured in such a way that they're placed perfectly and symmetrically the trees are cut in such a way that they fit symmetrically within the view and the water features and then you'd have peacocks from china and india all over the lawn essentially creating the environment into this perfect painting that even though it's an act of beauty fits in perfectly with the colonial mindset what it is is it's a symbolic act that represents the chokehold and control that you have over native wilderness including the people the people are seen as wild and savage and untamed so therefore the aesthetics of the plantation house has to also reflect that you out with the wild no wildflower no native plants don't allow the weeds to grow don't allow the native plants to grow in the way that they do carve out the landscape create a new one in your own idealized image of what perfection is and anything outside the walls of your landscaped garden that's beyond the pale that's where the savages are but within this beautiful perfect garden that you've created in your own image right there that's the ideology of colonialism reflected in the aesthetics of it and another thing that the the landlords of these houses like they they didn't work they made their money from the fact that they had acres and acres and acres of this confiscated land that was very heavily um pastured and you know crops being grown and those crops being exported and sold they were very very wealthy so often what a lot of them would do is instead of going to college they used to do this thing called the grand tour where they would visit we'll say classical sites of antiquity like rome and greece and things like that but also visit all other colonized areas of the british empire and it was usually young men who do it from the ages of about 19 to 24 they'd go on their grand tour but what they would do is they would travel to all parts of the British Empire and then they would pick up in various parts plants and exotic things exotic animals and exotic plants from all corners of the British Empire and then bring them back to Ireland to be planted on their estate or to live on the lawns of their estate and they'd have um, conservatories where they'd grow pineapples and oranges and these fetishized exotic things and essentially what they're doing is this this was like them hanging their degree on the wall their posh bastard visitors would come over from london visit their plantation house and then see like limerick has redwood trees 
that belong in California all over certain parts near the University of Limerick because those redwoods were brought over by some young lad on a, on a grand tour who'd managed to go as far as California and you'll see plants from India and that all that shit is very very dangerous for the environment and for biodiversity and a lot of it was brought in through that plantation and colonization process but mostly I think the most destructive for the environment element of this landscape garden culture and the big house and the plantation house and it's something I'll get into a bit more detail later is there's no television or magazines in those times so essentially celebrities and people who set trends and set style are the aristocracy the main aristocracy to set the style obviously are going to be the the royals but all these landlords would have been sixth seventh generation royal or they might have been dukes or whatever fucking things they have these were the celebrities and they were setting trends and styles with their lawns and with their plantation estates and these landscape gardens this was their status symbol this was their way of showing off and people would look to see what what is that person doing on their estate how can i copy that and they'd set trends but the trends demonized native wildflower native plants and it created in some situations kind of monoculture especially around grass and lawns so any of the biodiversity that ireland would have had in its natural meadows with different types of grasses that became demonized and instead they would bring the type of lawns and grasses we see today one type of grass which is shit for insects and animals and of course the great uh, crisis of biodiversity that had real human impact in ireland is obviously the great famine now the great potato famine there's many many causes some people rightfully call it genocide but there's also an environmental factor to take on board and climate scientists today do look to the irish potato famine as a horrible warning of what can happen um the irish people became completely reliant upon potatoes as their primary source of food it was a great source of food. It's a whole food. It has enough protein, carbohydrates, sugars, everything. You can just live on potatoes and be okay. And the Irish did that. The Irish were not allowed... All the food... Th- these big plantation estates... Where they'd gotten rid of all the forests and were growing crops. There was plenty of corn being grown. Plenty of wheat being grown. Plenty of carrots. Plenty of cabbages. But they were all being shipped out of Ireland. The Irish people weren't allowed to eat these things. So instead the the Irish people lived on really shit land. And had their tiny little cottages. Where they would grow just enough potatoes for themselves and and their families. But where the failure of the Irish potato crop becomes a biodiversity issue. Is because it's an example of what's known as pure monoculture. And this is one one of the warnings that scientists have today. Is that... A lot of the world's food depends upon these monocultures where we're growing massive, massive, massive amounts of foods from basically the same crop without diversity. So basically what happened in Ireland is this disease called blight 
this kills the fucking Irish potato. But one reason why it, why blight was so devastatingly effective at destroying entire crops to the point that there was a a fucking famine in a a country where it rains all the time and everything is green. One of the reasons that blight was so effective is there was only one type of potato in Ireland, a, a variety which I think it's it's I don't know is it extinct, but it's nearly impossible to get your hands on now. But a variety called the lumper potato, and the thing with lumper potatoes, this this breed. All the lumper potatoes in Ireland, they they were essentially clones. They were clones of other potatoes. So they had the exact same genetic fucking material. Each potato was identical to the other pretty much. And that right there is what's known as monoculture. There is zero genetic diversity in any of those potatoes. So when the blight comes, it's like fucking excellent. None of these potatoes have any diversity in their genes... If I kill one, I kill them all. So the blight eradicated all of the fucking potatoes because there was zero genetic diversity. It was a monoculture of just lumper potatoes. And they've done studies with fucking blight. And they would have... The way they study blight is you'd get one group of potatoes that are clones, essentially, monoculture, and then another group of potatoes that have a bit of genetic diversity. And the blight doesn't completely eradicate potato crops that have genetic diversity it only eradicates some and nature will keep the you know the healthy potatoes will survive and the weak ones won't but when you've got a population of spuds that's monoculture and just one type that are clones then you've got a widespread famine so right there is a biodiversity crisis in Ireland that killed 3 million people as a result of British colonisation. So I'm hot taking all over the gaff this week. Um, I'm not, like, I'm not, this podcast isn't about me seriously trying to fucking blame the Brits exclusively for the problems we're having in Ireland with biodiversity. There, what I'm trying to show is, is using the interesting topic of Irish history and Irish colonialism, showing how crises in biodiversity happen through aggressive human intervention. And yes, British colonialism absolutely had that effect on Ireland. It's not 100% the reason that we're in the situation we're in now. The situation we're in now, most likely, is it's 20th century behaviour after the fucking Brits. But where I want to get to, and where I want to get to regarding a call to action and the kind of more positive side of things where we can actually change. So when I spoke there about the cultural significance of the plantation garden and landscaping and these beautiful, uh, what will you see? There's a place called Ballyfin House. Is it called Ballyfin? I think it's in Leash. If you want to go and get a look at that, that was designed by a fella called Capability Brown who was probably the most famous landscape gardener ever. He designed landscapes like the paintings of John Constable or Turner. Do you know? Um, Ballyfin House. But there's loads of these old houses in Ireland. Most of them in England, to be honest, because the, the IRA burnt a lot of them down in Ireland. But if you still want to see these beautiful gardens, go and get a look at them. But they're a bad example. And this is what I'm trying to get to. So, the... 
landscaped garden of the 1700s and the 1800s led to a fetishization, uh, a stylistic fetishization, whereby native wild plants were demonized. They were seen as common, as wild, as untamed. And instead, what was fetishized was prim, proper, exotic, colonial. Okay? And you have this situation in these giant houses, but this sets a fucking trend. And this trend still exists today with our fetishization of lawns. Every house in Ireland has got a lawn. And these lawns, we must keep them fucking prim and proper and green. And the grasses on all the lawns, they're pretty all over Ireland. It's the same fucking shit. It's the same type of grass. It's a monoculture. And we don't plant wildflowers in our gardens. Instead, what we do is we go to garden centres and we fetishise the exotic. And we can trace this to the Victorians and the Georgians. When in both Britain and in Ireland, post-industrial revolution, you start to see the emergence of a middle class as such. This, like, the plantation fucking houses, there was no real middle class then. You had incredibly rich people and serfs. But after the Industrial Revolution, you start to see the emergence of people who are in the middle, whose bourgeois values, they aesthetically look up to these plantation owners because these are the people who set the trends and the style. And this emerging middle class now, they now live in in semi-detached houses or in row houses, and they have their little gardens, which are effectively modelled and the gardens of the large estates, using the same toxic principles of demonising native wildflower, native plants, and bringing in instead invasive, exotic things, and fetishising the perfect green lawn. The modern Irish garden is not a particularly friendly place for biodiversity. When you have a perfectly manicured lawn, that you look after and you take weeds out of there's no life on that lawn it's just green grass so the call to action and I'm going to call this as as a hot take word I think we should be leaving our lawns to grow a little bit more wild and I'm going to call this Chuckigar Lawn to take from the Republican phrase Chuckigar Law Chuckigar Lawn Don't be freaking out about having a perfect green lawn. Don't use fucking pesticides. Start introducing native wildflower into your own garden. If you want to help, the biggest issue that we got to tackle is butterflies, bees, insects. The really small little creatures. They're the ones that are, we'll say the indicator species that are really dying at the moment. There's 500,000 people in Ireland who listen to this podcast. If everyone who listened to this podcast made a choice to say that I'm going to stop fetishizing this aesthetic aesthetic values about my garden that come from the 1700s and 1800s and instead I'm going to embrace a garden that's more wild and natural and Irish... If everyone in Ireland did that, that would have a a genuine huge 
positive impact on biodiversity because now your garden becomes a place f- not for a- aesthetic beauty and for control and controlling their environment instead what it comes what it turns into is a place where wildlife can exist and thrive if you have a garden full of native wildflower all the bees are going to arrive into your garden and start pollinating and becoming healthy and improving their colonies like even if you leave your lawn grow a little bit longer like don't mow your lawn every fucking week mow it every two weeks if you don't like weeds ideally leave them there but do not fucking go and buy roundup don't spray weed killer weed killer is killing insects it's really it's it's going into the into the groundwater it's going into streams domestic use of weed killer is destroying creatures in ireland stop doing it if you don't like weeds get out a fucking trowel and cut them out of the ground if you hate them so much throw it into a compost heap or look up ways to make weed killer that's environmentally friendly there's a million people listening to this podcast in total so the other 500,000 are scattered all around the world so ye can do the same thing uh, find wildflower you, you can go to any garden centre and buy packets of wildflower the there's there's hardly any meadows left in Ireland. Meadows are very important for pollinating insects. Meadows have been replaced with agricultural land. Acres and acres of, of fields that are just there for cows to eat. That's not great for insects. It's great for cows. But it's not very good for insects. And we're losing loads and loads of these grasslands that have a huge variety and diversity of flowers for bees to collect pollen from and because these things are disappearing the bees are disappearing too and bees are fucking very important and it's not good enough to just have fields of wheat and to have most of your land used just for crops for human consumption that's not wildlife so we can make the wildlife our gardens there's loads and loads of gardens. Make them about natural Irish wildflower. Or whatever the fuck you live. Make it about your native wildflower. You can still have a garden. Like imagine this for a challenge. If you're the type of person who truly does love having a garden that you keep. That is aesthetically beautiful when you look at it from your kitchen window. And you like it to look that way. Reassess your aesthetics to accommodate plants that are are native and wildflower and you can still create a really really beautiful garden that has a degree of landscaping in it but it doesn't have exotic plants that might be invasive and it doesn't fetishize this big green lawn that no fucking insects exist on like do you ever cut your lawn after you've let it grow wild for a good while and you see all those little spiders and everything escaping that's their home And when you've got a perfectly shorn green lawn, nothing's living there. Be careful with fertilisers. That's another thing. Chemical fertilisers aren't great. Again, they seep into the groundwater. They find their way into rivers. They cause blooms in algae. Algal bloom then fucks with the level of oxygen in the water. This kills fish. Instead of using chemical fertilisers, 
start doing a compost heap. Then you've got all your waste from the kitchen. You're making your own compost. It's natural. You're doing it all in your own garden. You're feeding the plants what they need. And you can trust that compost that you make isn't going to end up leaking into any groundwater or creating any hassle. Also, within your compost that you make yourself, you've got worms, you've got little insects, bacteria, fungus, all of these useful things working with nature. So you can still have your fucking garden, but you're not taking the piss by using these chemical fertilizers. I know it's a lot of effort, but genuinely, like my ma was telling me a story about, she told me that she remembers in Limerick, and this would have been the 50s, when she said every house in Limerick had a pig out the back garden. And people would grow as much of their own fruit and vegetables as they could. They gave the scraps to the pig to feed. They mostly lived plant-based because they were poor. And then they would take the pig into town once a year and have him slaughtered for the meat for the winter that was preserved. And I'm not saying to you fucking have a pig out the back garden and kill it once a year in town. But that's a very self-sufficient style of living out of your back garden. Like, if you're the type of person, if you think you have the time and resources to even so much as grow 20% of the vegetables that you might consume throughout the, throughout the year, and you do that by becoming handy at things like canning, you know, you grow a load of fucking carrots, you can, so they don't go rotten, you learn how to can them in jars and shit like that. Stuff that people were doing 50, 60 years ago because they had to, because they had no money. This, small things like that are what you and I can do to improve biodiversity and stop putting a strain on the environment. Also as well, if you grow your own carrots, you grow your own herbs, that's another set of herbs that doesn't have to go on a ship that come all the way over from Spain. Do you know what I mean? Little things like that. But again, there's 500,000 people in Ireland listening to this podcast. If everyone did it, that's... And if you told your neighbours, it's a good chance at actual change. Um, As Kali Ennis mentioned on this podcast, because his thing is, is, is frogs. If you can, have a pond out your back garden. And it doesn't even have to be a fancy pond that has a pump or anything like that. Go onto YouTube and figure out, you know, out of an old tyre or an old barrel, what kind of stagnant water even can you make that would introduce uh insects birds dragonflies maybe even frogs tadpoles what can you do in your garden so now you're looking after aquatic animals because frogs are dying off big time because they've got no natural breeding grounds anymore so what little pond water feature can you have in your garden what project where you have it there and it's just small but you are providing a small little climate for some insects that really need it because everything's covered in fucking concrete the final thing i want to address and this is what i think could be a load of fucking fun it's really simple and could have real change and this also like if you're listening to this and you're feeling left out because you know you you might you might live in an apartment you have no garden whatsoever or 
you are one of the people who's renting in Ireland and you have no agency over your garden. If you start planting fucking carrots out the back, the landlord will go apeshit. So I'm sure there's plenty of people listening to this podcast who are in that situation. Here's a cool thing that I think everyone should do this. This should become a new type of Irish culture within the tradition of, we'll say, environmentalism as an act of decolonization. Chockigar lawn, right? Gorilla gardening. Not gorilla warfare, but gorilla gardening. Gorilla gardening is when a citizen takes it upon themselves to look around their city or their countryside and they find available pieces of space that are being unused and they then try and plant things that are beneficial to the environment in these areas of public space, okay? There's various ways that people do it. Some people go totally extreme and they start digging up the earth and really planting things in there. But here's the simplest way and and a really, really helpful way to have a crack at guerrilla gardening, which I think would be a, a lot of fun if everyone started doing it. I'm going to give you a recipe for a thing called a seed bomb. And a seed bomb is, it actually comes from, it's like an ancient Japanese culture. In Japan it was called a Nendo Dango. But what a seed bomb is, it's a small little clay ball, about the size of a golf ball or smaller, that contains the seeds of native wildflower. And you can carry these seed bombs around in your pocket and just throw them anywhere if you're walking past like open up your eyes when you walk around your city or walk around your countryside and do you see like a vacant lot where there's just a bunch of nettles or dandelions growing or even the middle of a roundabout or a ghost estate or like in Limerick we've got this thing the Parkway Valley Centre now I know it's going to be fucking it's going to be built over soon but it's this huge monstrosity of of a a fucking a shopping centre that was never built full of ugly concrete with weeds trying to make its way through with with seed bombs you have this grenade of life a grenade in your pocket that has the seeds of native wildflower that you can throw whatever the fuck you want and when that lands it will grow into native wildflower that will assist bees and butterflies and all these things so this is how you make a seed bomb first off you need uh, get a bag of wildflower seeds you can buy wildflower in any garden centre you can buy it online make sure it's native wildflower obviously if you're in ireland it needs to be irish wildflower if you're in britain british wildflower if you're listening from spain spanish wildflower so get your hands on a decent amount of assorted wildflower seeds the more assorted the better then go into like an art shop and buy a clay pottery clay it's not that expensive you get a big like a kilogram of it for about a tenner, okay? And when you have pottery clay, um, make sure that when you take it out, you close it because it can dry up quickly. So you've got native wildflower seed, you've got some uh, pottery clay that you get in an art shop, and then just a regular bag of compost, right? So what you want to do is mix the compost 
and the clay, I would say mostly mostly compost but what you want and use a bit of water as well but essentially what you want is for the compost and the clay together for you to be able to form it into these golf ball sized balls but into this then as well throw your native seed so roll it in your hand and now essentially what you have is this this ball of pottery clay and compost with native iris seeds in it so once you have these balls made dry them don't put them in plastic. What you want to try and do is let them dry naturally, um, preferably in the sun, so that they kind of dry out. Don't dry them in an oven or anything like that because you can kill the seeds. But you need to make sure they dry because that will stop the seed from germinating. And the benefit of these little balls is that the shape of them themselves becomes its own little planting pot. So you don't need to get a seed bomb and you don't need to plant it in the ground you could literally have a dried seed bomb in your pocket or in your bag. Don't keep them in plastic, like I said, because that can increase moisture, but keep it in in a paper or whatever. And you have these on you at all times and you're walking around town or around your city and you see a vacant, unused lot. You can throw the seed bomb in there. When the fucking rain hits it, the seed bomb will grow. If it's big enough, you could nearly put it on concrete and that bit of earth and soil there would work. And then you've got native Irish wildflower growing. Imagine, like, make a load of them. Give them to your friends. Tell them, tell them what they are. And now you're armed with this fucking weapon that increases biodiversity wherever you go. If you're a business owner, if you have a cafe, make a batch of fucking seed bombs and give them out free to the people there. Tell them what they are. If you're in a student union in a college get a workshop together and everyone makes a shitload of seed bombs and that's what people have have them on you at all times to be thinking about the environment around you mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for mother's day than whole foods market they're your destination for unbeatable savings from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts start by saving 33 with prime on all body care and candles then get a 15 stem bunch of tulips for just 9.99 each with prime round out mom's menu with festive rosé irresistible berry chantilly cake and more special treats come celebrate mother's day at whole foods market where can you put these, throw them over fences, into ghost estates, into whatever, and populate the entire fucking landscape with native wildflower that supports bees and beetles and butterflies, which then supports bats. Do you know, I think that'd be a great thing for everybody to do. And it's so simple. If you can't be arse making them, go online. I'm pretty sure you can buy pre-made seed bombs with native Irish wildflower in them, but it's probably cheaper and more sensible for everyone to be completely self-sufficient and to be able to make them themselves. One thing I do want to (coughs) warn about there, I guarantee you someone's listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, wow, that sounds like a class idea. I'm going to make these seed bombs, but for the laugh, I'm also going to put cannabis seed into my seed bomb and we can grow wildflower and there'll be cannabis everywhere. I guarantee you someone's thinking that. Don't do that. And 
nothing against cannabis. You know my feelings on that. I'll tell you why not to do that. If ye out there decide for the laugh, let's put some cannabis seed in these balls, then what that does is it encourages... Let's just say for the laugh, you find a fucking ghost estate and you've got your wildflower and then for the laugh you put in some fucking hash seeds. If you throw that into a ghost estate and all of a sudden now there's wildflower and cannabis growing, someone's going to see it, someone's going to rat it out and then you've got the county council or the guards down with weed killer to kill the cannabis seeds that are growing. So that would be hugely counterproductive. So even if you think that'd be crack, definitely don't do that because it will result in some prick who doesn't give a shit with fucking weed killer. And another issue of county councils, a huge problem with biodiversity in Ireland is county councils cutting down fucking hedgerows and destroying nesting populations of birds. Keep an eye on your local council workers, your local park workers. Make sure they're educated on the damage that they could do to populations of birds and insects through using fucking weed killer and cutting down hedges can't have that anymore and on the railroads um another thing you can do urban beekeeping um if you don't want to be a beekeeper yourself i guarantee you if you're living one of in one of the cities in ireland there's somebody doing urban beekeeping if you have an apartment block if you have any type of space you can offer your space for an urban beekeeper to come in and keep a hive like I know in Limerick there's at least there's six or seven beehives that are on the roofs of buildings. Um it's actually there's a it's an art project in Limerick called Soft Day and their art project is based around colony collapse of bees. So what they do as part of their art project is plant these beehives all around rooftops on Limerick City. And that stuff's fucking amazing. To use the urban landscape to have beehives living and then for them to have access to wildflowers sure look if the 500,000 fucking Irish people listen to this podcast if if only a, a percentage took that on board or if you don't have the means to take it on board you told a friend to take it on board that could have real impact to Irish biodiversity you know I don't know what it would do for global biodiversity, but for Ireland, for your your community, it would have to have a positive difference to make your garden, if you have one, a space for wildlife and for insects and not necessarily a space for aesthetic beauty based on 18th century British colonialism. So, look, I hope you enjoyed that. I'm not an expert on this shit. I'm only learning. I'm trying my best. Um, if you want to hear an expert, go back to my podcast called St. Anne's Handstand, where I interviewed Collie Ennis from Trinity College. He's who got me into this shit. He's the person who... What I loved about talking to Collie was that he gave me that sense of hope. He's a very positive person. And he... When, when, when I'm reading about climate change, when I'm reading about biodiversity... I love to also hear about here are the changes that you can do in your life. Here are the things that you can do to improve things to help. I always think that's a positive thing rather than coming away from it with a sense of fear and hopelessness. So I hope you enjoyed that anyway. I'll be back next week. Um, I'm out of the country 
to uh, for business for writing and for other stuff i'm out of the country next week and the week after so i'll be doing those podcasts on the road so i don't know what they're going to be about anyway but sure we'll have crack i hope you enjoyed this like i said it's it's a roasting hot take i'm not blaming the brits on problems with irish biodiversity i'm just trying to contextualize the whole thing in an interesting hour an entertaining hour god bless go fuck yourselves Yort. <laughs>